The brain isn't just a bunch of Lego blocks stuck together that each of them are doing their own thing. It's a bunch of distinct areas that communicate via these pathways, so white matter tracts and things like that. And damage to these connections can cause problems every bit as much as damage to some of the individual areas can. Hello and welcome to this episode of A Grey Matter. I'm Rebecca Archer. Have you ever visited a friend's house and just before opening the door had an expectation of what will greet you on the other side? Maybe you pictured your friend's warm smile or a beautiful painting hanging on the wall. Maybe it was a hallway full of children's toys or their dog waiting impatiently to give you a big sloppy kiss. This is what neuroscience calls predictive attention. What you expect to perceive, and it's opening some fascinating doors into the inner workings of our brain. Queensland Brain Institute neuroscientist Dr Margaret Moore is studying predictive attention, how it works, what it does, and how it impacts healthy and damaged brains. Perhaps you can start by explaining what happens in the brain when we start paying attention. Every second of every day we have this immense amount of sensory information, so but not all of this is useful to us. And it's really metabolically expensive to actually process it. So to save calories, to be more efficient, your brain tries to focus processing in on what is most important, most helpful, and most relevant to you. And that process of selecting some input to process more efficiently than others is attention. But our attention can obviously easily wander, taking us away from the task at hand. How does that impact on these processes? Is the brain just working overtime? I think that one of the fundamental components of the attention and why it's so important is that it's so dynamic and it can be moved across different things at different times. From an evolutionary perspective, it is not a good idea to be entirely focused on one thing and only that thing and not allow other things to intrude because you need to be able to shift your attention when something new comes up that's more important. And so it's a dynamic process. It can change a lot. That can lead to lots of distractions, but is ultimately one of the more important parts of this process. I suppose as you're saying, it's probably not great to just focus solely on one thing. It's also not ideal to to have your attention split between too many things. I mean, yes. we, we always think in modern life about, oh, it's great if you can multitask, but is that actually good for us? I'm not entirely convinced that people can multitask. I think it's just a matter of being able to switch back and forth very quickly. And I think one of the reasons we see lots of issues with this in modern day is that there are lots of things that are all trying to grab our attention. So every little ad you see, every little thing that pops up on your phone is designed to hijack your attentional system and say, pay attention to me rather than anything else. So it's not like our our system itself isn't working as well as it could be. It's just that people have designed things to try to hack that system. The study of this behaviour has got another name, of course, and that is neuropsychology. Does this go beyond how we think or what choices we make? Cognitive neuropsychology, which is what my background in, is it's kind of a way of addressing these questions. So specifically, it's talking about how brain damage helps us understand how behavior is working in the first place. And the reason this is important is lots of people in cognitive neuroscience and more theoretical disciplines spend a lot of time coming up with these nice models of how they think processes work. And neuropsychology is a test of that. It's trying to see if the predictions of those models are matched by what happens when things get a little weird, as opposed to when they're all working normally. So it's more of a way of addressing 
a question rather than this question. We all have, of course, those moments where you expect something to happen before it actually does happen. Could you break down exactly what predictive attention is? So this is something it's, I mean, lots of people disagree on what it actually is, but the general concept is that it's expensive to process things from visual input all the way up into recognizing something. And your brain is designed to take as many shortcuts as it possibly can along that process. So if you have really strong beliefs, really specific evidence that something, you're going to see something, something will occur where you expect it to, attention is used to focus the processing in on that bit. And so this can both happen in terms of if you're expecting to see a cat, the bit of your brain that says cat might start preparing itself to be activated. So it's so it needs less information to decide what you're seeing. And another context is a really good example of how expectations drive attention is when you're looking for certain things. And so if I was looking for my water bottle, the first place I would look would be on a table or on a surface because I know that's where I normally put things. And so that's a really good example of how these expectations and predictions focus attention and just all work together to try to make things a bit cheaper for the brain to process. And I believe also, I can recall from a previous podcast, the idea that because your water bottle is actually blue, your brain will single out things that are actually blue in the room. Is that right? Yes. So there's been good evidence that if you are expecting a very specific low-level visual feature, which can be something like color, in experiments it's often things like the orientation of a line, you're, if you are expecting that to happen, you can see brain activity that says that concept has been activated. So the little, the cells that would be related to that, if it was actually shown, sometimes start working even if it's not shown yet, but you expect it to be shown. And this happens, so a lot of past research has done this on the level of low-level visual features, so color, shape, line orientation. But some of my new work has been looking at this at high-level concepts, so trying to see if we can get the brain to say chicken when you're expecting to see a chicken rather than just saying the color or something like that. Why are you particularly curious about predictive attention? What are you hoping your results will show us about the brain? I think it's really fascinating that there are so many processes that are like an absolutely fundamental way of the way we perceive the world that bias like what we see what we expect to see all of these things that we have absolutely no idea how they're working and I think I kind of like those big unknowns so I think I've come to realize that I tend to be a bit more interested by solving problems rather than this a topic and it's just an interesting and complex problem to try to solve so I got into it from looking at how these things go wrong in brain damage and have slowly worked to looking at it from different different areas. So are you able to describe for me what happens in the brain if I go somewhere where I expect something to happen? For example, picking my children up from school, I expect them to walk out in a particular route that they would take and it's a certain time each day. And if I don't see that happen and the minutes are ticking away, what's going on in a healthy human brain? So again, complex problem, but the idea is that when you are encoding, so when the brain is trying to understand what you're seeing, it understands this both as a function of what you actually see, so the visual input you're actually getting, but also by incorporating what you're expecting to see. And so the idea is that at each level of visual process, you're going to have information coming from what you see. So you expect your kids to be there, but you don't see them. So you've got the, hey, they're not there information coming one way up the pipeline. 
And the other way down the pipeline, you have the, ooh, but they're usually there information. And at each level of the process, these things are kind of competing with each other. So the brain encodes that and says, ooh, there's a difference between what we see and what we expect to see and encodes that as what's called a prediction error. And so you should have some kind of signal that says specifically, what I'm seeing does not align with my expectation. And that information is really important because that information is, again, fed forward and used to build a new model of what you expect the world around you to look like. And so it's a really efficient process because you only update these stored models when you have these prediction errors. So when they're not working well, you change them. But if they are working well, you don't need to do anything. And every step where were you what you expect to see agrees with what you do actually see, that makes it easier to process. So it sounds like it's a bit of a glitch when these yes. things happen. <laughs> yes. It's, you know, you're, you've got your routine, you've got your expectations. It could be as simple as going through the grocery store and they don't have a particular product that you like and having to realign, oh, okay. I can't actually get that today. I'll have to either go without or get something else. I think one of the really cool things about this as well is it's not something that just happens when we are aware of it. You have both these conscious like personally driven expectations where you know you're expecting your kids to be there at some point in time, but that's not the only kind of regularities we pick up on. So our visual system is really good at picking out patterns in the world around us, and we might not be aware of those patterns, but our cells can be responding to them. And so it happens both based on what you expect to see and also what your sensory systems expect to see based on their past experience, regardless of what it means to you or whether or not you're aware of it. How do you do your research? Is it in animal modeling or do you actually get to use human beings and sort of go through some different steps to measure what's going on for them? So I work with humans. Right now I'm doing a lot with EEG, which is electroencephalography, and that's a way of recording electrical activities from different areas of the brain and trying to, the approaches I use at least, are trying to understand what information is carried by those signals. And so it's a lot of, lot of uh, machine learning type things. And so you train machine learning algorithms to try to pick up what different aspects of brain signal correlate to specific things about what you're seeing. And then you can try to fit those models to lots of different circumstances. So when you expected to see something but you didn't, and then you can quantify the difference between how well do your models you've built match the actual data in cases where things agreed with your expectations and when they didn't agree with your expectations. So it's a, it's a cool technique. It's pretty new to me, though. Have you worked with animal models in the past and how does it compare yeah. with human? I have never done animal stuff. The other approach that I probably have more experience with is I've worked a lot with brain damaged patients. And so I worked a lot with a condition called visuospatial neglect. And it's really common. It's in like, if you've read like Oliver Sacks books and things like that, it's all over the place. But it's a really common post-stroke cognitive impairment in which you become unable to pay attention to certain areas of space. And so what this will look like is if I would walk up to a patient and talk to them. If you're on one side of space, they won't acknowledge you at all. Like they can hear you, but they're not paying attention. They can see you because their visual systems are working normally, but they're not paying attention to those signals. And so it's kind of a attentional blindness that happens because you're getting all the input you need, but you're not actually paying attention to it. And it's a really cool example of how attention actually mediates perception. So they're not two separate things. They really depend on one another. And does that sort of study and research lead you to potentially getting ways to treat that? 
Yes, in a way. So it's a really hard question because people have known about neglect for a long time. It's a really prominent predictor of poor long-term recovery outcomes in stroke patients. It really dramatically affects the way you want to, you'll live your life after you've had a stroke. But there hasn't really been any good evidence of there's what works to help people with it. So part of that is because a lot of it spontaneously recovers. So 60% of it recovers within the first 10 days following stroke on its own. But what remains, people don't really know how to get rid of. And I think part of the problem with that is that we don't really have a good understanding of exactly what is going wrong in this condition. And at least in my mind, if you don't understand what is causing the problem, it's there's not really a good way to efficiently design a solution that targets the actual problem. And I think a lot of the existing rehabilitation techniques target symptoms rather than causes, and that's a problem. But one of the things I've been working on is trying to figure out whether or not these predictions are what's going wrong in this intentional condition. So maybe our idea is that maybe if you're not neurally encoding the idea that, hey, something can appear on this side of space, that you're not directing your attention that way, you're not processing any of that information because your predictions are misguiding your attention. And we think that that could maybe provide a good explanation of what's going on there. Are you able to give us a bit of detail about the types of technology that you use in your research and how it works and if there are any sort of exciting developments coming up in terms of breakthroughs in technology that would really help your research? Mm. So I work a lot with what would be considered more like uh, simple technology. So I'm not doing a lot of fMRI and things like that. Part of the reason is because, I mean, that's expensive to do, and I think it's best to get a clear idea of, I mean, they answer different questions. So the kind of things I'm looking at now are, they're helpful for looking at what information is processed when in like the visual processing hierarchy. So by seeing at what point in time things like shape versus recognizing something as a cat are encoded in the brain, you can make some inferences about what stages in the process these things are actually being used. Uh, That is all done through EEG data, which I've talked about before, but fMRI data is the other one where that's more about where things are happening in the brain. And I think it's really important to first establish that some kind of information is used before you start building and saying where it's used neuroanatomically. But that's probably a bit of a tangent. But So I think the things I use that are quite new aren't necessarily how you collect the data, but it's how you look at the data. So in terms of this EEG stuff I've been talking about, we use what's called multivariate pattern analysis, which is machine learning training these algorithms to pull out information in the brain that we wouldn't be able to see without a computer. And so that's quite cutting edge, but a lot of people do use it. In terms of my other older work, I do a lot with lesion mapping. So lesion mapping is a way of using which areas are damaged in the brain to try to figure out what those brain areas were doing in the first place. And so it's essentially, you take a bunch of people who've had a stroke, you say this area was damaged and all of them, and then you do a bunch of statistics to see how damage to certain areas correlates with different behavioral scores. And you can do this based on just standard, this one brain area is related to damage, but you can also do a lot more complex analyses, which I've been involved with designing new analyses and things like that that look at 
uh, disconnection between different areas of the brain because the brain isn't just a bunch of Lego blocks stuck together that each of them are doing their own thing. It's a bunch of distinct areas that communicate via these pathways, so white matter tracts and things like that. And damage to these connections can cause problems every bit as much as damage to some of the individual areas can. And so a lot of the new research I've been working on treats the brain as a network and which uh, disconnection is a really important predictor of who's going to have certain deficits and who isn't and things like that. Now, it seems that there's a lot of big data in your research. How do you sift through all of that information to find your eureka moments? Really good statistics. <laughs> so a lot of these things aren't things that I've made up, but they are, exist in the literature in a way to deal with these kind of big data. So. A lot of it is you need to be able to write and or use computer programs that can do the heavy lifting for you. So I, as a human being, could not identify disconnection patterns and things like that just by looking at a lesion. But lots of people in the past have done things like built functional atlases where you can compare your data to and draw inferences. So I'd say it's more about building on the tools that other people have. And in the context of Eureka moments, I'm not, I don't think I've ever had a Eureka moment. I think the stuff that's been big has been more of a, ooh, that's weird. I wonder if I've messed something up. And then you dig for a while and you get slowly more confident that, no, I haven't messed something up. It's just weird. And that weird can be really informative. So some of the more surprising results we've had recently have just been a result of playing around and finding something that looks really weird and then spending a long time trying to figure out if that is meaningful weird or you've messed up your math weird. And we found some cool things from that. You did mention that your early research was focused on the impacts of stroke. Yes. Um, what persuaded you to change from that line of thinking to attention? Is there any link between the two? So I'd say I was studying attention before, but just in stroke patients. So I was focusing on what happens when things go wrong. And a lot of that research was very clinically focused. And so it was doing things like how can we use different attention problems that people have to predict who's going to recover well and who isn't going to recover well. And then also looking at ways to like how can doctors better diagnose these treatments and how can we avoid our biases about what we expect to happen and keep that from messing up how we diagnose people. So I did a lot of work on that. And I think that led to... I spent a lot of time on visuospatial neglect and I slowly began to realize that there might be thousands and thousands of papers about this, but I'm not really convinced by any of the explanations people have for what's actually going wrong. And I think that it's really important to build up an understanding of how these things work in the healthy brain and finding exactly what the difference is between healthy and damaged to then understand what is going wrong in people with brain damage. But I think too, one of the main things that made me do this little switch is I just, I just want to learn new skills. I really enjoy just doing research as a whole. And I think that long-term, what I would really like to do is a lot of people do really good clinical research. A lot of people do really good neuroscience research. Not many people can kind of bring those two things together. So I think at least there are all these amazing neuroscience techniques that really could be applied to help us understand what's going on in brain damage, but they haven't really, just because the people who tend to do clinical research 
don't tend to also know how to do functional imaging. And the people who do functional imaging don't necessarily know how to access patients. And so in the long term, I would like to combine the patient work plus the more healthy people work to look at these things together. So studying a damaged brain seems a fairly obvious place to explore diseases and disorders of the brain. But it is my understanding that you think the healthy brain can open new avenues of research. Why is that? I think they're just two different sides of the same question. So as I said before, uh, a lot of people just look at healthy brains and that kind of stuff is really good for helping us build up ideas of how things might be working. So you can try to figure out to what extent is attention biasing perception and things like that in healthy adults. You can figure out how people use expectations versus how they don't. And from that, often people build theories. And so you have little box narrow diagrams saying, this information is considered at this stage, which is then fed forward to this stage, which then splits into two different things and stuff like that. But a good way to test whether or not that's actually right is seeing if how things break down align with how they're expected to work. So a really good example of this is I've done a lot of work on neglect. And in this, healthy models have built these ideas that you can have attention which is both centered relative to your own body. So this would be saying attending to my left versus my right. But you can also have object-centered attention. So focusing on my water bottle and looking at one side of that versus another side of that. And people have said that, oh, those are two separate processes. And some people have said, no, they're just the same thing, but applied in different places. And those kind of questions are where this brain damage work can come in. Because you can say, okay, we've looked at patients. In these patients, we see some people who have attentional problems relative to the body, but are fine within objects. And then you can have the other side of that. So you can have people who are have object-centered problems, but not body-centered problems. And that's what's called a double dissociation. And that's like the gold standard for saying that at some point, these two processes must be independent. Because if they were the same thing, it would be impossible for one to be damaged but the other one not to be damaged and things like that. There's some nuances to that. So you could say it could be a function of severity or it could just be dependent on the task. But the general idea is that if two things are the same thing, you shouldn't expect one to be damaged and one to be spared in brain damage. And then the opposite, if they're two different things, you should see people with just one problem versus just another problem. So this is how you can use brain damage to test those models and see if they're on the right track or not. Okay. You've experienced working in both the lab and with patients in the clinic. What, in your opinion, are the benefits personally and professionally of being a clinician researcher? So I think I'm going to preface this by saying I actually have no proper clinical training. During my PhD, I worked in acute stroke ward, and the deal was that I would go in and act as a neuropsychologist would. And so I don't have any clinical training, but I do know how to run these tests, and that was enough for them. So my job was I would go in, and everyone who came through with a stroke diagnosis, I would run some standard assessments on them. So what we did was the Oxford Cognitive Screen, which my supervisor made. It's really nice. It's common in lots of places in Australia now as well. But so my job was to administer that test and see who had which problems and then report back to the doctors to say, "Mm, this person's got an attention problem. Maybe pay attention to that and consider that in their outcome planning. But, and then from that, I would find people with potentially weird problems. So things I thought could be used to test existing models and run case studies based off of that. But I think one of the things that is most important about being aware of clinical environments is that you realize how much of a mess the real world is. So I think when you work with healthy people, you have this nice concept that 
everyone can sit in a chair and be fine and do your experiment and pay attention for an hour and it'll be okay. And we can generalize that to patients and run the same thing in patients. It is not like that. Patients are, I mean, collecting, trying to collect research data on a stroke ward, like people perform very differently depending on how tired they are that day or how loud their next door neighbor is or how stressed they are about whether or not you get interrupted and things that you might think to be like one constant can be dramatically different depending on time of day and things like that. And it just, it made me to realize how important it is uh, to have good statistical power and being representative of the samples you're trying to draw conclusions about. So what that means is uh, statistical power is just a way of saying how likely your study is to be able to find something if it actually is there. And so, I mean, it's very reasonable to do a study and not have an effect, but if there is an effect, it's a way of saying, this is your probability of finding the effect. The comparison between the clinic and like our kind of healthy research lab is just makes you be a bit more cautious with how you talk about your results helping everyone, so. Margaret, what's brought you to the Queensland Brain Institute? How did you get here and how long have you been here and how long are you sort of envisaging that you'll stay? So I've been here for just under a year now, and I came right after my PhD to work with Professor Jason Mattingly. I came because I wanted to learn new things, and it seemed like a really good environment in which I could build new skill sets while also still using some of my old ones. So I still am doing a good amount of clinical work with uh, Professor Gail Robinson, who runs the Neuropsychology Center. So I help her out with her lesion mapping and things like that, but then on the side get to learn all these new skills, EEG and things like that. So it just, it seemed like a really good place for me to grow as a researcher, and also just it I was really drawn to Australia because it seems like a really nice place to be. And so far, I have really enjoyed it. Well, Margaret, it's just been great having you on the podcast today and so interesting to hear about the kind of research that you're working on. I am positive that you have many, many eureka moments in your future. (laughs) If you'd like to learn more or support the work we do at the Queensland Brain Institute, head to qbi.uq.edu.au. I'm Rebecca Archer, and that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening.